Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Yeah. Like when you look at people like Blake or Emily or, you know, or um, Cindy Crawford I've worked with, like they're doing farmer carries, like they're doing goblet squats. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And this week, continuing on our theme, we have the best of better 22 edition. And this week, we are talking all about building an hourglass figure, muscle hypertrophy, and cardiovascular training. So pulling some of my favorite conversations on the topic this year from our podcast guests. And a couple of favorites, actually, in this episode. So you are going to hear from Sal Stefano, easily one of my top three favorite conversations of the year. We talk about the psychology behind fitness and setting fitness goals. We talk about performance metrics. We talk to Dr. Mindy Pels, and we are covering exogenous ketone supplementation, fasted workouts versus fed workouts. We talk about mTOR, creatine, and amino acids. Uh, I re I bring one of my favorite conversations this year from Dr. Phil Maffetone on aerobic training volume. And then we have some gems from Dr. Lane and Norton. We talk about why women tend to avoid building muscle, the psychological rewards of showing up for yourself in the gym, even when you don't feel like it and what that builds, that kind of resilience and mental grit in an individual. Uh, and then we speak to Don Saladino, trainer to some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. We talk about upper body strength for females, physique building for women, lifting heavy around your cycle. And then finally, the keto savage himself, Robert Sykes. We talk about building and cutting phases, performance, and building muscle on a ketogenic diet and supplementations to consume. These are, as you know, uh, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. And I hope you enjoy the best of better 2022 muscle and hypertrophy edition. 
I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementi's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. And for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. With someone uh, such as yourself with the, you know, the caliber of clients that you have, I think that you're probably asked like, maybe more often than you want, yeah. uh, you know, what's the, what's the program that Blake does? What's the program that Ryan does or Anne Hathaway does, you know, et cetera. And I think that that's the wrong question. Yeah. I think that the question is, what is the thing that I can do consistently over time? That's going to reap the best results so that I can, you know, you mentioned before, get stronger and I can show up for the people that matter to me in my life, husband, kids, you know, career, whatever it is. Um, one of the things that I noticed, um, at least when I was in my brick and mortar practice, because we would do a lot of physical testing um, for the for our incoming patients, was that no one could do a squat properly. And uh, my women specifically, we had a push-up test and it was like, not on your knees. I want you to do a push-up on your toes, as many as you can do with good form. Rarely would they get to two. So we mm -hmm. have this sort of rampant problem with nobody's knowing how to squat properly. And then women, you know, we, I know, I, I think that most women would agree lunges and hip hinges and 
things with the lower body, like squats and, you know, all of that are great for shaping our lower body. But I think we don't pay enough attention to the upper body and upper body strength with women, which is why we see so many women who can't do a pull up and who can't do like, no, like the pull movement, let's say is not uh, optimized and neither is the push. Like nobody, not many women can do more than five pushups. Right. I think they're automatically afraid that they're going to put bulk on there. Right. And, and, um, and, and listen, and I think that's, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not being sexist here. I'm saying something statistically. I mean, I, I know more women that have stronger lower bodies than guys, but you know, rarely are you going to see, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but females have a stronger you know upper body than, yeah. um, than uh, men. And I think you just said it statistically, they do not They're I think they're more afraid to go in and to actually train. And I, and I think it, when, when you ask me, it's not, and you were right. Like it's, what are their programs? I think it's more, what do they do in common? Right? Like, what do I have all of them do in common? And the f- first things that I do when I sit down with them is I ask them about sleep quality. That's like probably number one. I ask them about, you know, new things going on nutritionally, di- digestion, hydration, like those, those to me are really important things. And then I get into activity level and then the program is going to change, right? It's going to change according to equipment. It's going to change according to inefficiencies on how someone moves, right? If, um, if someone can't externally rotate that, you know, that, that arm or they have poor thoracic extension, I'll, I'll work on that stuff, right? I'll work on that in their movement prep, or prehab or warm up, whatever the hell that you want to call it. And then after I'm focusing on the kind of unwinding the body and trying to recreate some mobility in the body, then yeah, then we're getting into the training portion of it. And the things I have to focus on also, like, what are they interested in? If someone's coming to me, they're like, I absolutely hate doing this. I'm a good enough coach where I can get a very similar response from having them do something that they don't absolutely hate. So I do understand that the entertainment effect is important, but yeah. Like when you look at people like Blake or Emily or, you know, or, um, Cindy Crawford, I've worked with, like they're doing farmer carries, like they're doing goblet squats. Like they are, you know, some of them might be, you know, one might be learning to, you know, do a kettlebell swing and I may never have another one do a kettlebell swing. Why? Cause one, it just aggravates them. They, they're always living in extension. Their low back for some reason just lights up. So I'm not going to be stubborn and say, let's continue to do this. I'm continuing to find out and understand why that happens and focus on those things. But the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Like I'm going to turn around and I'm going to find something else, you know, different to still give them that same response, pushing sleds. Yes. Pressing, pulling, getting them doing pull-ups, banded up. If I have to, maybe in the beginning with, with the push up, which I think is one of those foundational movements that we should all do, or we should know, have the strength to do, but if they can't, yeah, we'll have them do it on an elevation. Yeah. I'm trying to enhance the push up by talking to them about how pushups are moving plank and, and engaging the lats and engaging the glutes and having it move in one piece rather than always going into extension. There are things that I'm tightening up on that in time, you know, I like, I believe a goblet squat, like it's not just about the lower body, like a lot of core there. A lot of upper body has to stabilize that. Like, do we have to have a bar or back? I did today, but most people don't have to have that. It's something I enjoy doing and I've earned the right to do. So, you know, again, being strong is something that um, I feel like a lot of women should continuing to be focused on, right? And not just cardio, cardio, cardio. You know better than anyone. It's like, well, if we develop muscle on our body, our body becomes a little bit more of that fat burning furnace, right? Well, increase that resting metabolic rate, which means we're burning more fat calories at rest. That's important. Is cardio still important? I love cardio. I enjoy it, 
right? I like getting that mindless sweat, but I'm not in there. If I have to lean out for the cover of muscle and fitness, which I might've shot last October, I'm not sitting there like cardio, cardio, cardio. Like my training doesn't change. My macros are a little bit more dialed in and I'm paying attention. Is it hit cardio? Well, I might be really stressed out from the amount of training and my, and my nutrition and maybe work and other things. So maybe hit cardio isn't the best decision for me. Maybe it is steady state. Well, I heard hit cardio was the best for fat burning. It's like where these are all minuscule, you know, best. It's like, what does that mean? Like what, they gave it to a focus group of 10 people and they might've gotten a little bit of a better response to it. There's so many variables that they're not taking into consideration that I need to take into consideration as a coach. If someone's taxed, if they're just fatigued, if they're not sleeping well enough, hit cardio might be the absolute worst decision for them. Right. So I think a lot of times we need that coaching element. We can't just look at it what's on paper and say, oh, well, so-and-so did it. They're an influencer. They look great. Yeah, but that's what worked for them. I want to talk a little bit about fitness. Obviously, very well known. You and your wife are you know, very well known for uh, your, we'll say, um, knowledge and experience in bodybuilding uh, for men and women. Um, and I wanted to talk, uh, I wanted to at least uh, touch on the myths for training for women. Um, I've had Sal uh, Stefano on the show. Uh, we've talked about this. I've had many experts. I've had my coach on the show uh, to talk about uh, some of these myths. And I, as someone who talks about uh, weightlifting, because it's been I mean, it's been one of the, you know, more consistent, I'll say healing forces, let's say in my life, not, I mean, at first, well, I'll just like, I got into it because I want to look good like everyone else, but it's really given me so much. It's given me mental grit, resilience, self-acceptance, all the things I, I was always searching for elsewhere. I got it, you know, with, with the, with the weights. Um, but the thing that I always, I still bump several times a week, several times a week, aren't I going to get bulky? Aren't I, aren't I going to put on too much if I start lifting? Cause I'm always advocating for, uh, well, I'll say heavy lifts always. And then the way that you do it in the set, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about kind of different, uh, we'll say hormonal compositions of a, a woman's menstrual cycle when she's in her, uh, reproductive years. But I always want women lifting heavy to the point where they are coming close to fatigue, muscle fatigue. Um, and you can do that in a five rep set, you can do that in a 30 rep set. So, and I kind of oscillate uh, all over the place with that, but can you speak to this myth that perseverates? I don't know why and how that women are going to look like the Hulk if they start lifting weights. Yeah. That's like saying, no, I really don't want to start driving because I'm afraid I might end up being a NASCAR driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So as someone who has spent their entire adult life trying to get too jacked and basically in, if I was in a suit, you'd say, Oh yeah, that guy's fit. You know, I like, I like muscle looks good. Are there some, like my wife is when she was at her peak of muscularity, she's kind of dialed it back a little bit, but when she was at her peak and she's a lifetime drug-free athlete, I mean, she was about as muscular as it gets for a woman. And still, when she was in the gym, she'd have women come up to her, oh my God, you look so fit. You know, what do, what do you do? Do you do PX90 you know, or whatever it is, or CrossFit? And she's like, no, nah, I squat, deadlift, hip thrust heavy, you know, you know, X, Y, Z. 
Because for the most part, muscle looks good. It's body fat that doesn't look good. Now, are there select women who can get really muscular? Yes, but again, that's like worrying about going outside because you're going to get struck by lightning. Well, you'd and, know oh, if you I, were that woman. You'd know if right. you were that woman. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and the thing is, like, it's not difficult. Muscle is not difficult to lose. So if you start getting too muscular, just stop training as much. <laughs> it's, it's really not difficult. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is this is just one of those. I read a quote one time and it might tick a few people off, but I really like it. It's uh, women lifting heavy is feared by two types of people, men who fear women and women who fear work. And, you know, I think that resistance training actually for women is an absolute game changer. Like you will see women who are just like, come into so much confidence. Like I always joke, my wife loves to take souls in the gym. And so what I mean by that is she, if she's deadlifting, she's looking down the line at all the men that she's deadlifted more than she's like, yeah, got you, got you. <laughs> but like not in a nasty way. She just like motivated. No, but in her. an empowered way. It's, yes. it's, yeah. It's like, I am strong. There's something beautiful yeah. about feeling yeah. strong. I said this to Sal when he was here. I said like, I'm totally going to, people are going to write in and be like, I can't believe you said this, but I, I, Sometimes like my partner and I will, will, you know, we're, we're going for a walk, whatever. Um, we'll go for a dinner and then we like to go for walks after our dinners and for going out and we'll be walking and I'll be like, I could take that guy. Okay. Maybe that guy's a little taller than me, <laughs> but if we were in an alley, it wouldn't be my wallet that was getting taken. Like I wouldn't worry about it. Right. And I think that, and I don't say it in a derogatory, I'm not trying to be derogatory. I'm trying to say that I feel strong in my body. I feel like I could, if it can, if we're coming, going to the extreme, I had to defend myself. Like I could take someone, I can pull up my body weight like eight times unassisted. You know, I can squat. It's like a decent squat, 195. Like, I feel like that's a good amount for a woman. And yeah. You know, and my, my hip thrust is like easily double that, you know? So I think that, yeah. um, I think that, um, it's wonderful to put in the work because there's nothing, you know, and I, I said this to Sal, like there's no other game like there's, you know, and I get a lot of women in perimenopause that are like, listen, Steph, it's not working. The things I did like now when I'm 45, they're not working the same way that they did when they were 25. So age is always like kind of top of mind, but we also want to be thinking about how can you put on as much skeletal muscle now in arguably a more anabolic environment where we have estrogen and testosterone still cycling so that, and then continue to do that after menopause in this postmenopausal kind of time so that you were saying the grip strength, the ability to get off the floor unassisted, you know, all like the, 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 um, like I've seen images, I'm sure you've seen them as well. These sarcopenic let like these femurs with this fatty infiltration of like the glute and the quad. And it's like, I will never, I'm never, I never want to, I never want to get there. Yeah. So I think the first thing I said is there's actually a recent study that came out that showed that postmenopausal women were able to gain just as much muscle as premenopausal women as a percentage of their starting lean body mass. So 
the 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 rub being that at postmenopausal they had a little bit less lean body mass to start with. So the absolute amount of lean body mass they put on was a little bit less than people who were young, but they were still able to add significant lean body mass. And that actually, interestingly, right across the street from where I did my PhD was the uh, kinesiology department at University of Illinois. And when I was there, they were doing a study where they took frail elderly people who could barely, like barely stand up off a chair. And they started them out with basically just high box sits, right? So they would like just go down a few inches, touch a box and come back up. And then they gradually lowered the box. They got to the point where some of these people were actually holding weights and doing this um, and going down to basically a parallel box. And they were able to show significant muscle hypertrophy as like, and we're talking about people over age of 75. It is never too late to start this stuff. In fact, if you have it, now's the best time that it's ever been. And um, the, the differences in bone density, like people talk about calcium and vitamin D. Go lift weights. That is the most powerful, in, that will improve your bone density more than all that other stuff combined. Like lifting weights is, I realize I'm biased on this, but I think lifting weights is probably one of the healthiest things you can do, if not the healthiest. I think um, it's a reasonable bias. I think it's a reasonable bias that would be difficult yeah. to tear down. I don't think there's anything quite like exercise in drug form or any corollary that I can that I can think of that would mimic the short and long-term effects that exercise gives you. Yeah, and I think more to the point you talked about, like, just the, if it was just about like the muscle I gained and the strength I gained, that's great. But like the stuff that exercise taught me in my life, I would never be as successful as I am today if it wasn't for lifting weights. I would never develop the confidence I have today if it wasn't for lifting weights. Like that, being able to struggle, overcome, adapt, that gave me the fortitude to try other things that were even harder. And then other things and then other things. And it just, I always tell people, if like the only thing you learned from lifting weights was how to grow muscle, you weren't, you weren't listening for the life lessons that you were missing out on. Like you weren't listening to the teacher. Yeah, it's the time um, under tension, right? Like the more time yeah. you spend under tension, you're able, that bleeds into or, you know, goes into other areas of your for life. For sure. I, I, yeah. No, I think one of the things I was, I was telling somebody about, I've been through different, very hard seasons of my life. And I was talking to a friend who's going through one himself. And I said, try to reframe what you're going through as not, I, I, I hope life will get easier. It might not, but you will get more adapted at carrying the load. When I've, you know, I, my best squat ever is 668 pounds. Oh man. But wow. I always thought like, oh, if I squat that much, you know, four or 500 pounds will feel light. Here's the secret. It doesn't feel <laughs> light. It still feels like four or 500 pounds. I'm just better adapted at handling it. Right. right? right. So, and again, just those lessons that you, you carry over from lifting weights uh, that you can carry over in your life. So yeah, I, I think if there's if there's people who are listening who you know are worried about lifting weights because of societal pressures or they're worried about getting too bulky, one 
highly unlikely. And two, you are missing out on so much. And honestly, it, you don't even have to be like Stephanie and I, where you're doing, you know, you know, an hour or two a day and, you know, four or five days a week, like even 30 to 45 minutes, three times a week will have a huge effect, even without weight loss, will have a huge effect on your health. So let's talk a little bit about physique building for women. I know we've been kind of dancing around it a little bit. We've talked about uh, low intensity, steady state. We've talked about high intensity uh, hit training. Um, I always get this question and I have a, I have a couple of thoughts around it, but I'm curious about your response. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that um, I remember when I first launched like my first fitness program and I started like this was like super naive and junior because I thought that everybody had sort of everyone was on board with this. But I'm like, OK, so you're going to be eating more calories than maintenance because we're trying. It was like a it was a booty building program. And they were like mm-hmm. all the women were like, what? <laughs> so my question to you. And so I learned the uh, well, I'll say I learned the hard way that being. Uh, telling a woman that she needs to first find out what her maintenance calories are and then eat surplus to that, especially if her goals are hypertrophy, which is what you require in order to build muscle. Uh, A lot of women are not comfortable with that. So the question that I get most often is how do you build muscle, but lose fat? Or how do you build muscle in a caloric deficit? Um, And I'll, I'll, I'm sure you have some thoughts on it. I, I certainly do, but I would love for you to, I'm curious to your response around that. I think building muscle in a caloric deficit is very difficult. I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm not going to say that I haven't done it. Right. I'm, um, for, for me to be in a caloric surplus, um, over the last 25 years, am I going to tell you I've been in a caloric surplus all the time? Absolutely not. I've probably been more towards maintenance calories into a deficit, um, than I have been in a surplus. And, you know, I remember since I really started this, I probably put naturally, you know, probably about 35, 40 pounds of muscle on in my lifetime, which is my lifetime of, of training, which, you know, since, you know, I'm sorry, let's do the math. And I started when I was 16. So yeah, it's close to 30 years. So I think like most people, you know, that sounds like a lot, but in that period of time, it really doesn't. Um, what I try and do with people is I try and understand where their calories at, because if a woman's consuming, and I'm just saying women right now, because I know this is, you're saying this is the majority of the people that you work with. If a woman's consuming a thousand calories a day, which is probably underneath where they should be consuming, right? Would you agree with me? Like most oh my women, goodness. Most yeah, women right. are, and most women are around that. They're around a thousand, 1200 calories. Which is why I'm it. saying that at hundred percent, it's probably more like, you know, a thousand to 1200 calories, but yeah. let's just say a thousand for math purposes. And they go and they find out that their to- total daily energy expenditure, meaning the total amount of calories that they need is 2000. I will never tell that person that they need to be eating 2000 calories that next day. I might, depending on the individual, have them increase their calories per week, maybe a hundred to 200 calories a week. Right. So if we took, if let's, let's low ball, let's say we increase someone hundred calories a week, which could be, you know, 25 grams of protein one week, 25 grams of carbs another week, uh, you know, granted, you know, four calories per gram. So that could, that would come out to a hundred. That's going to take 10 weeks to get them up to their TDEE. So while I'm doing that, I'm looking at, well, how's energy? How's your energy, right? Is your energy improving? How's body composition? Well, I gained a pound. Well, I'm not too worried about a pound. That's probably water weight. We'll probably get your metabolism and things to speed up a little bit. How's your sleep quality? Um, sometimes I've, I've actually had specific individuals' body composition improve. Like, oh my God, I haven't lost any weight, but my pants are fitting me. Looks 
I'm like, well, what else is going on? People are commenting, I'm losing weight, but I'm not losing weight. What should I do? Keep doing what you're doing, right? <laughs> yes, so I, yes. I take a real simplistic <laughs> approach there, but I also just understand that like, you know, it's so, it's so individualistic. I have a thousand people on my challenge this month. And, you know, I have one guy that, you know, he just, we sent him to a nutritionist, one of my in-house nutritionists, we've worked with him over time and he just, his body just does not do well with a higher level of carbohydrates. I'm a carbohydrate person, right? Like I to prep for, you know, my cover in 2018, I just had to look up at it. It was, I was consuming um, 300 grams of carbs a day through sweet potato and jasmine rice and maybe yeah, it a wasn't little bit Hagen of fruit. And cookies. No, yeah. it wasn't Hagen dazs No, it was also so understanding like I'm cutting carbs. Most of the time I'm like, okay, no, mm-hmm. you're cutting bad carbs but our body still needs that energy. So it really is a tough question to answer because, you know, I, I do have to go against, you know, my own rule book sometimes and understand that you could try something with someone over time, but, you know, sometimes you got to go against the grain of what it is that the majority of your people follow. Um, but, you know, I can tell you right now that most people that I find that are already in that, that deficit of 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day where are you going to go? So when a nutrition comes to me and they're like, to burn body fat, you have to be in a deficit. I'm like, absolutely false. Like, I, like, I don't care what nutritionist sits down with me. I don't care what your degrees are. I don't care what doctor you are. Absolutely false. You do not have to be in a deficit to burn fat. You don't. You can clean up your calories because a calorie, all calories aren't created equal. Some people say they are, but let's face it. If I was to turn around and feed one of your clients 3,000 calories a day through McDonald's and they're consuming that processed food and that sugar and what that's doing to hormones and what that's doing to sleep quality and energy level and you know, just, just, just overall quality of life, you're going to feel like shit. Right. Excuse my language, but that's what's going to happen. Energy is going to be down. Training is going to probably be crappy. You're not going to feel good. Now, if we consume now, if I'm sitting there cooking for you 3000 calories a day, which is going to be really difficult to get down, by the way, because when you're doing it through clean nutrition, you know, as well as anyone that's it it becomes a lot more. You have fiber um, and you have satiety um, regulators that are. Exactly. Thank you. And um, so, yeah, now things change a little bit. And. 10 out of 10 times, I've never seen anyone, I've never worked with anyone where once we just change those calories and it's the same number of calories, you will see body composition improvement. Clothes will start fitting you a little bit better. And what are you using to measure also? Like, are you standing on some BS bioelectrical impedance scale that's like, oh, telling me that I'm at 28% body fat? I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm at 28% body fat, sure. <laughs> or are you like, you know, and even there's other things that I'll go do, like DEXA scans and like, I've manipulated those numbers. Like I, I know how to do it. Like you can do it. Like I, I've gone in for elimination diets and nine, nine, you know, nine, uh, nine, 10 days later coming back in and seeing that my body fat has gone from nine to six. Like, really? Did I, did I lose that much body fat in that period of time? So I, I also think how people are quantifying success is completely false. Right after my cover shoot, you know, they, they, when I went in for a DEXA, my abs were at five but my legs were at nine or 10 because I've done a lot of power lifting. So that's going to offset my body fat. So when people are like, wait a second, it's saying Donnie's is seven and a half. There's no way there's no, I am. You're, you're not looking at how much fats, you know, you know, surrounding my, my organs. You're not looking at my lower body. You're not looking at it, you know, from triceps to subscap to, to all these different areas that are going to hold 
fat on your body differently. We're all different. Every client that you work with is going to hold fat in different places a little bit differently. They're going to respond to training a little bit differently. It really is difficult, but there's all these different ways of measuring. And I think that kind of screws things up also, because then suddenly someone's just using someone, something and they're thinking that's the gold standard. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about muscle hypertrophy or physique building, let's say. Uh, sometimes when I say bodybuilding, women are like, what? You mean like the orange freaks on stage? It's like, no, no, we're talking about building a body. That's what bodybuilding yeah. is. Um, what makes um, what makes an effective uh, resistance training session with respect to hypertrophy? So we can talk maybe, or maybe you can talk a little bit about um, sets, approaching muscle fatigue, um, mechanical tension, metabolic stress. Like I know that there's a lot in there. And again, this is why I'm like, part two, but I, I want to try to get this in a little bit into this conversation and then maybe we'll, we'll get you back for another one and we can dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. I'll try to make the synopsis as, as quick as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, if you want to create muscle hypertrophy, you have to induce adaptation. Like you have to force your body to adapt. Um, if you like, so when you go into the gym for the first time, an empty bar might be enough to force you to adapt, Right. Over time, your body adapts, and now that empty bar is, is no longer sufficient to force adaptation. So now you've got to add whatever, a five or a 10 on each side, and then you can keep doing that over time. We, we know that as progressive overload. But progressive overload isn't just weight on the bar. It's also uh, volume, number of hard sets, um, a few different – you do more reps, you know, those sorts of things. Rest time. <laughs> Rest time, sure. So we used to have, typically, there's a few things, principles that we know about resistance training. One, rep range doesn't appear to be super important for hypertrophy. You mentioned anywhere between five and 30 reps. I would even argue it's more like two to 30 reps. But uh, there are certain advantages in terms of rep ranges just from a practical perspective. So it's probably not a great idea to be on the, the extreme ends of those rep ranges for a couple of reasons. First one is it is really difficult to take sets like 30 reps and close to fatigue. That is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Most people who are doing high rep stuff are not going anywhere close to fatigue because if they were, you'd have people vomiting all over the place in the gym. Um, it's probably also not a great idea to do, you know, if you're taking two rep sets to fatigue, that is very heavy weight and that is very mentally fatiguing. I'll never forget uh, when my wife first moved over, we were, we were dating. So my wife's Australian. Um, I was getting ready for nationals in 2017 uh, in powerlifting. And I would do like a set of two reps. And then I would like sit down for like 10 minutes. And she'd be like, why are you taking so much? You just did two reps. I'm like, because I'm exhausted. Because that took every amount of like mental focus I had to squat 600 pounds for two reps, you know? Um, and so she actually got into powerlifting for a little bit and she said, she realized you know, I'd go into the gym and I would slap a plate on each side of the, the bar and I would squat 10 reps and I would get a good sweat and I'd be like, Oh, that was a hard workout. And I never really pushed myself to understand what fatigue was like, what was failure truly for me. And that was a game changer for her because she was like, oh, well, now I understand why you're resting five, 10 minutes because that was really, really hard. So 
the, you know, people have said for a long time, you know, okay, hypertrophy is like the rep range between six to 12 reps or, or six to 15 reps or whatever it is. It doesn't matter on a physiological basis. Like we do know that if you get much past 30 reps, it's probably not optimal that it's a lower, uh, like stimulation, but on a practical perspective, six to 15 reps is kind of a nice middle ground where you use heavy enough weight to where, um, you don't have to do a ton of reps to get close to fatigue and your sets aren't super long, but it's also not so heavy that it's so like psychologically draining. Right. So I do think like that kind of six to 15 rep range can be really useful for people. Now, we also know that it's important to take sets close to fatigue or close to failure in order to maximize muscle growth. You don't have to take it to failure, which failure is defined as at least what I define it is you could not do another repetition with good form. If you tried the research shows that if you go within a couple reps of failure, like two or three reps of failure, uh, you get basically all the benefits of going to failure, but without so much like psychological and people say central nervous system fatigue, but there's no evidence it really fatigues the central nervous system, but it's probably just like overall uh, fatigue. Uh, so I tell people most of your sets should probably two or three reps shy of failure, right? Like right around that, that spot. Now the problem is people are really terrible, especially beginners and intermediates at knowing how far they are from failure. So uh, in research studies where they take beginners and intermediates and have them estimate their RPE or how, or sorry, repetitions in reserve, which is how many reps somebody thinks they have till failure, they usually underestimate by about five. So if they got to rep eight and said, oh, I, I had my RIR is two, I could have only done 10 reps. On average, when the researchers push them to go all the way to failure, they get 13, right? So people are sorry, no, they get 15. 15. Yeah, 15. Mm -hmm. So people are really poor estimators of, their, of how many reps they have until they have trained to failure. So what I'll say is you don't have to train to failure. I do think training to failure for periods of time or, you know, at different times can be helpful. So you actually understand what that feels like. What does that sensation feel like? I would say for me, I can estimate within one or two reps of failure very, very accurately, even at lower loads. Um, so that's part of it. We also know that you kind of max out your hypertrophy response around six to 10 sets for a muscle group in a session. Um, and per then week, you say per week or per session, per session, per session. Um, so that you don't really get much of a synthetic response over that. And actually what's interesting is if you rest longer between sets, you actually need less sets to maximize hypertrophy. So there was a, a meta regression that was done that showed if you rest, I think it was more than three minutes that six sets will maximize hypertrophy. But if you rest less than a minute, it takes about 10 sets. So that's not saying you can't rest short. It just means that if you're going to rest less between sets, you're going to need a few more sets. And that's probably because your performance just starts decreasing between each sets. Cause you can't give, if you're only resting less than a minute, you're really not giving it your, all you've got. So um, what I'll tell people is the tenets that you really want to focus on is, you know, getting enough volume in, 
but don't go crazy. Like just because you, you know that six sets per body part will maximize hypertrophy or 10 sets per body part uh, in a session, that doesn't mean you should be doing six sets for every body part three times a week. Like that's going to be a, an enormous amount of training volume. And to be honest, if you're a beginner or intermediate, you just don't need that much. You know, I would recommend increasing your set number incrementally. Like if you're, if you're getting stronger, you're doing more reps, um, you're seeing changes in your physique and you're only doing like, you know, four or five sets per week for a body part, wait till you plateau and then add, you know, 15% or 20% more volume and then help you get over that plateau. Um, in terms of frequency, so like how many times a week to train a body part? For upper body, there was a meta-analysis done on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what the meta-analysis said, then I'm going to tell you my personal opinion. Um, it said for upper body, two times a week is better than one. For lower body, there was a trend for two times a week to be better, but it wasn't statistically significant. I think that training a body part multiple times a week makes a lot of sense, um, just as a way to distribute volume for one. And two, because we do know that there appears to be a within session cap to the anabolic response. So it would make sense to at least spread that out over, you know, two or three sessions a week for a body part. So those are kind of the tenants I start people with, but obviously like depending on, you know, if somebody's beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know, when I got up there in volume for, you know, trying to get my squat to like a world record level, you know, there were periods of time where I was squatting four times a week. Uh, for for a lot of sets, <laughs> so I I think for the average person, you know, two times a week is probably great. But as you start getting more advanced, you may need more than that. Let's talk a little bit about lifting heavy. One of the things that um, I am always telling my women, so we've we let's just assume that you're not going to turn into the Hulk because you can't. You don't have the testosterone to do so. I mean, there there, sure. and and we'll say that maybe maybe there is a small percentage of women who have the genetic, you know, makeup and constitution to be able to put on massive amounts of muscle. But you'll already know if you're that person because you, you'll already be super lean. You would have known this your whole life. Mm-hmm. So let's just assume that you're not going to get bulky. One of the things that I often talk about is lifting differently, especially for women who are in their uh, reproductive years still. So they have this, you know, this menstrual cycle, this reproductive cycle where they have these altered hormones, let's say through the month. Um, I still, and I'll say you'll change the reps, right? So maybe in week two, pre-ovulatory, we see testosterone spiking. Like I want you to lift like a heavy mother, like a, you know, a yeah, mofo, right? Yeah. Like I want hit five it, to it. seven reps. There should be someone there. You know, there's like three to like, there's a spotter there because it's that heavy. But when you go back to like the eight to 10, let's say in week one or week three, because we have like lower estrogen, we have lower estrogen, et cetera. That still doesn't, that doesn't mean that you just like, you're just kind of like looking around, like it's still heavy, like no matter the sets. Oh my God. I love that. You're saying this, this is so good. This is so awesome. I always laugh. People are like, Oh, you know, do you, uh, uh, do you, you like to lift heavy all the, all the time? And I'm like, yeah, They're like, but I just saw you do 20 reps on something. I'm like, yeah, but it was heavy. It was <laughs> heavy like, for 20. Yeah. Not, I don't know if I could be doing singles, which I like doing fives, eights, tens, twenties. Um, my buddy and I, the other day, we, we just decided for some reason to just murder each other and just do some huge drop sets. And we were doing like 50 to a hundred reps on like a, 
like a finishing set, like it's heavy no matter what. Like it doesn't matter. But yeah, no, I listen, I I think that's when you really start taking things up a notch, like what you're talking about with doing things around an individual's menstrual cycle. And and um, but I do believe I, I like I, I've had plenty of women train in that five to seven rep range or that five to eight rep range. Um, but they got to believe in it. Right. And they also have to understand that you, oh, you, you can't always point the finger at the program. I'm getting bigger. Okay. Let's talk about what have you been doing? Like, and, and there is, listen, there is a possibility. Like there's sometimes, um, you know, women might respond a certain way, or sometimes I've worked with a lot of models for, you know, you know, whether it's Victoria's Secret models or whoever it is that their body types have to, they really need to keep their body into a specific, you know, um, requirement. And we have to be, and I, and I also have to play to their, you know, to their confidence level. So if they're, you know, panicking about strength training, I'm not going to get them down to fives and sevens in the beginning. Like just the fact that I have a right. dumbbell on their hand now is all right. Let's just, let's just kind of work our way into <laughs> and it's okay. it. They're pink not... and they're, <laughs> it's fine. As mm. long as you have them in your hands. <laughs> but you know what? I actually had a, I actually had a crazy story. Again, it's a stigma. It's this thing in our head, like quick, quick, quick story for you. I had a woman, very well-known name show up into my office one day and she's panicking. And I'm like, what is it? I'm, 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 oh my God, I'm drinking too much wine and I'm having too many desserts. And I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? Like, like, what like is your are your measurements off she's like no my measurements are perfect and i'm like well, what did your booker say like is he is he panicking at you right now is he telling you that you know, th that your looks bad no he's actually really happy i'm like all right listen i gotta ask you this question as your coach like how do you think you look naked she goes I look pretty damn good to be honest with you i'm feeling pretty <laughs> good so, so i looked at her i'm like well what's the problem I'm like what are you been doing she's like i've been having a glass of red wine every night i've been splitting a dessert with you know whoever it was, you know, I'm splitting the dessert with them. I'm like, good for you. She's like, well, what do you mean? I'm having gluten, too much sugar. I'm like that's in your head. Like you exercise, you're on your feet all day. You eat beautifully all day. If the worst thing that you're doing to your body, you don't do drugs, you don't smoke, nothing. You, you never have more than a, a drink. Like if the worst thing you're having every night is a glass of wine and a fork full of a chocolate cake, and you look like that and you feel great. Your blood markers are fantastic because you're going in for your checkups. Good for you. This is how I want you to live. And if it becomes a problem, then we'll talk about it. But again, it's this whole thing in our head that we have to live a certain way because someone else is or someone else is recommending it, right? And that's far from the, from, from, we have one life to live here. We got to enjoy it. Am I going to tell you I never have a beer? Like, of course I do. Like I, I love beer. Like I, I do. Like I love like my wife and I, when we, when we travel and we go snowboarding with the kids, like our thing is to drink like good IPAs or lagers or whatever. When I'm home from that though, like it's, it's game time. I never drink at home. Like I go out to dinner. I don't drink, but like there's certain times when we were in Turks and Caicos two weeks ago, yeah, every day at lunch, I, I have like two president days. Like I'm not going to hang myself over that. Like I, I exercise, I keep my vegetables robust. I make sure I'm getting good quality proteins in and I stay hydrated and I, and I work out at what level, when I was on my trip, I was getting 30, 40 minute workouts. And sometimes I was going back in when my wife was getting ready, I was doing a run. Sometimes I wasn't, but I sweat. I felt good. I enjoyed some food. I got back to New York. It was game time. That's how I want people to live. Like, don't live like a hermit when you're on vacation. That's when you call it a vacation, right? Like, we're not going to, if you follow these values, the majority of your life and, and the majority of the time throughout the year, you're, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And as we come up to the summer season, you know, of course, there's a lot of barbecues. There's the 4th of July. There's. Oh, it gets tough. 
you know, and, and people are like, what should I do? I'm like, you should enjoy yourself because you know, that if you are 80% of the time, let's say, or 90% of the time you are on point with your nutrition, you have a routine dialed in that you're able to, uh, you know, punch out consistently, then you can have the popsicles and the beer yes. and the potato salad, whatever, you know, whatever yeah, it is. Whatever you want to have. Or yeah. like if I'm going to a Mexican restaurant, my wife and I are going to drink a few margaritas. Like, Am I worried about the sugar? Like, no, I'm not going to trash my body from what. Now, if I was doing it three days a week, different story. Correct. If I was even doing it weekly, like, would I be in the shape I'm in now? Probably not. I'd probably start retaining a little too much water. The quality of my body composition is going to maybe diminish a little bit at the point where maybe I'm only going to notice. No one else is going to notice. So, you know, I think it really is to each his own. Like, I, I think you got to understand that there's got to be some discipline put into this. Like there's got to be some call what you want laws, rules, values that you follow. Like I just, I never, ever, ever will open, you know, a, a, have a cocktail at home. I just don't do it. Like I just, I save it for when I know, like I'm going to Nashville in a hockey tournament in a few weeks. I'll probably have a few beers with the guys. I will not have one until then. I just won't. It's just not important to me. But when I'm away with my friends and we're playing hockey, we're having a good time. Yeah, you indulge a little bit. But that's how I like to live. And yeah, and not, then what's the point in know. having so much health if you can't spend it? You know, like if you can't go and have a beer with your buddies or have some margaritas with your wife, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I am a, you know, a health nut or, you know, whatever you want to call it as well. Right. Um, yeah, but it. what is the point if you are all, if there's no pleasure in it, right? If you're, if you go on vacation, like, oh, I can't have that. No, you should have the rice and you should have the guacamole and the tacos yeah, and whatever comes with it. Enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy it. But like, like even the things that you just said, like, rice, guacamole, tacos, like these are nutritious foods, right? right? Like, I mean, really right? But think about that. But like, I was like, well, I was posting my food when I was away. The Amanyara you know, asked me to do some, some posting for, for them. And yeah, I was eating, what was I having for lunch? Having some chips and guac. I was having a big salad. I was having fish tacos. It was delicious. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like it was a flour tortilla. Okay. I had two president days or like a red stripe. Like, it's going to be okay. Right. Like you're active, you move, you enjoy. And when you, and when you get back, home, then you're, people ask, how do I stay motivated? It's because I don't deprive myself of those things, of that enjoyment all the time. I'm always motivated because, you know, after I do something like that, I feel like I've earned it. And then it's time for me to go back home. But what I won't do is on a Tuesday night, I won't be bored with my wife and say, all right, let's open a bottle of wine. Like that's not existent. Like that's not existent. I don't need that. So let's talk a little bit about strength because often, and I sort of pre-framed it a bit before, I'll have women say to me, I want to lose fat. Uh, like I want to lose weight. What will they say? I want to lose weight. What they really mean is I want to reduce my total adipose, like my adipose tissue. I don't want to lose brain weight yeah. or bone weight or whatever. One of the things that I have found really helpful is shifting the focus away from wet weight loss or fat loss. We can certainly focus on it, but I like to focus on performance. I like to focus on like the PRs that you were talking about with your uh, with your teenager who did like you're a different person now because you did eight this week and like last week you did six. Can you talk to some of the maybe reframes, uh, you know, psychological reframes maybe that we can be speaking to our at least female patients, but certainly anyone um, around, yes, maybe fat loss is an, is an admirable goal to work towards, but can we also add in a few other objectives, a few other lifestyle objectives, like being able to put the overhead compartment or the other one that I like to do is like, can you stand up from a seated position, 
like on the floor without using your hands because yeah. I, I want like I think about my life and I want to be the favorite grandmother like that's my like that's what I'm working towards so I want to be able to get down on the floor with the toddler and play with the and run after the baby and all those different things so can can you speak a little bit about yeah. reframing goals yeah yeah for I want to comment also real quick on what you said about the grip strength test you know mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't know that 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 is a better a sink that single metric is a better predictor of all-cause mortality than almost any other single metric, just to show you how important physical strength is and what that tells you about your about your health. Okay, so got, you asked the best questions. You're bringing up lots of memories. So I, I remember, uh, I don't know how many years into training this was. It wasn't very, very long, but I had this, uh, this woman that I trained, and then she wanted to bring me her daughter to train. Her daughter was in her 20s, and she was recovering from uh, anorexia. And so she said, Sal, I wanna bring you my daughter. It's been recommended that she do some strength training, but um, she is recovering from anorexia. And I said, okay. I said, I've never worked with anybody with eating disorder. So if it's okay, I'd like to, to call her therapist and talk to her therapist about appropriate ways to approach nutrition. I wanna be very careful, right? I don't wanna, you know, cause I know fitness can actually push people into dysfunction as well because you start to become body obsessed, right? So I did, I talked to this therapist and she was, she was wonderful. And she said, don't, um, she said, focus on her performance. Just talk about how strong she is. And I thought that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant because you can't starve yourself and malnourish yourself and get stronger. It just doesn't work that way. So that's what I did. I trained her and it was all about, uh, how strong she was, how, you know, how much she could squat, how many reps she could do in pushups and if she could do a pull-up. And it was exceptional uh, how well it worked. And then I started to apply that to many of my clients and in particular women. Women are, are men also can get pretty body focused, uh, but oftentimes women, this is what they're really focused on. It's like, I just wanna look a particular way. And you can do a lot of things wrong by being body focused. You could starve yourself, you could overtrain, you could uh, malnourish yourself because you're so focused on the scale or how your pants fit or how small you feel, but it's really hard. Not saying it's impossible because it's also possible. It's very hard to do a lot of wrong things and get stronger. You have to at least feed yourself properly. You can't overtrain and get stronger. You can't undertrain and get strong. Like you got to train appropriately to get stronger. Um, so performance is an amazing metric. So if you gauge your progress through your performance, especially for the first few years of training, because at some point you're not going to get any stronger at some point, but at least the first three years of training, if you're focused on how strong can I get, how mobile can I get, uh, how many push-ups I can do, what's my stamina like, if you focus on those things, the physical results will follow, right? You'll, 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 you'll get that side effect of getting leaner, the side effect of, of sculpting and shaping your body through performance. If it's body focused, you can oftentimes go the wrong direction. And, um, and then, you know, it's, it's hard to reverse out of that. So I love performance uh, as a metric. I often focus on that, especially uh, with my female clients. It was like, they'd come to me and say, I want to lose 20 pounds. And I'd say, that's wonderful, but here's what we're going to do for the first three months. I'm going to try and get you really strong. And they say, well, why? And I talk about metabolism, all that stuff. And luckily I'm very convincing. So I'd get them to trust me. And I'd say, just trust me. We're just going to see how strong we can get you. And then at the end of three months, I think you'll be, you'll be pleased. And they always were, they always were. And then, and then also focus on performance is fun. It's really fun. It's, it doesn't feel as negative. It's like, it's very empowering. It's just a great feeling. It's different than like, 
and you talked about the scale, man, the scale is, uh, I mean, I, so I used to love doing this, right? So when I used to, I, there was one gym that I, I managed for a while in San Jose over here. And one of my jobs as a, as a general manager was I was also responsible for the sales, uh, how many memberships we sell and, and training, all that stuff. And I had this really effective technique that I would use sometimes. And I would do this anytime I had a, a potential member come in, especially a woman who was apprehensive to, you know, the, the machines and the weights in the gym, right? So I'd take someone through, I want to lose weight. And they'd be like, I just want to do the classes. I just want to do the cardio. I don't want to build muscle. I don't want to get bigger. I don't want to whatever. And I'd talk to them about the benefits. And again, I can be pretty convincing, but we'd get back to my office and they would say, no, I don't, don't want to lift weights or whatever. I'd say, no problem. And then I'd say this, I'd do this thing. I'd say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in one of my female trainers. And if you can guess her body weight within 15 pounds, I'll give you a free membership for two months. If you can't, uh, then we'll talk about maybe the benefits of, of strength training. And they would all take that bet. I mean, everybody's like, I could guess within 15 pounds. So then I would get on my intercom and attention staff, so-and-so come to Sal's office and in would walk in. There was one uh, girl in particular I, I'm thinking about would come in and she was this five foot two, you know, uh, very lean, probably 15% body fat, sculpted physique. And she'd walk in and they'd all guess that she was like 90 pounds. Oh, she weighs 90 pounds. And I'd have a scale in my, in my office and I'd have her stand on the scale and you know, she's 130 pounds and they would be just mind blown. How does she weigh 130 pounds? And I'd say, she's got a lot of muscle. It's muscle is not, does not take up a lot of space. And then I would add the cherry on top and I'd say, you know, tell, can you tell this person what you eat on a regular basis? And she'd say, oh, for <laughs> breakfast, I had, you know, four egg omelet, and three slices of soap, you know, sourdough toast. And then for lunch, I had a burrito from Chipotle or whatever. And they would be blown away and I'd say, her metabolism is on fire. Like that's, the, that's where we want to get. Uh, with exercise, but yeah, the, the chasing performance, um, is a great way to, to, to build a good relationship with exercise. It's a, it's a great place to start. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, well, uh, you know, maybe I'll say the yin and the yang of training because everybody sees, as we were just mentioning, everyone sees that super lean, super ripped physique. When you get on stage, you know, I remember leading up to my figure and I was like, oh my God, I'm getting up on stage and people are going to judge my body in a bikini. Like what have I gotten myself into? Right. So you, 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 uh, you know, let's, let's think about, um, the cut, right. You have to have some sort of caloric deficit to lead up to that, um, to that point. However, what I think, as you were mentioning, what's left out of the conversation is the surplus or the build phase, because one of the things that I run into 
at least with at least the type of clients that I type, uh, you know, tend to attract, which is just, you know, me, <laughs> like different, you know, different versions of me is, can't I just be in a caloric deficit indefinitely? Can't I just always be at, you know, I got down to my shows like 8% body fat. So for a woman, you know, as you might imagine, like amenorrheic and like, you know, I got down really lean, very lean for, uh, for a female. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the build. Let's talk about why this is so important. And then the oscillation or the importance of the oscillation between spending, uh, I would argue more time in a build or caloric, at least maintenance, but potentially surplus. And then what, you know, how much time we should be spending in a cut or, or a caloric restrictive phase. Yeah. I think this, this needs to be talked about at nauseum because I feel like it's not talked about near enough. And I feel like this is where so many of the issues arise with regards to hormonal health and metabolic function. Um, so I like to think of it in terms of, you know, for me as a natural athlete, I'm spending between four and six months worth of time cutting down for a show. After that, I'll spend two or three months reverse dieting back up to my new maintenance intake. And then from there, I'm in a caloric surplus for the next one, two, sometimes three years. So I'm spending significantly more time in that building phase than I'm in that cutting phase. And I feel like the exact opposite is what holds true for most people, because what, what is talked about, what is sexy to post about on Instagram is how lean you're looking, you know, your striated glutes and ripped abs and people don't really talk about the off season, uh, that building phase, but that's where you're that's where you add more lean muscle tissue. That's where you ramp up your metabolic rate. That's where you improve your hormonal function. And if people are not spending ample time in that building phase, they're just chronically and constantly asking too much of their body. And they're spending so much time in a deficit that everything starts to downregulate their metabolic rate downregulates their hormone function downregulates their ability to preserve and add more lean mus muscle tissue is diminished. It's just not sustainable, not healthy. And I think more people need to hear the conversation on the other end of the spectrum about spending that time in that building phase. And committing and sort of surrendering to the process, because I think that a lot of times when you go into a build, what is predictable and necessary is weight gain. Like you are going mm -hmm. to be gaining lean muscle, as you mentioned, but you're also going to be putting on some body fat. And I think that we need to maybe as a, as a society, uh, just become a little bit more comfortable with that, that you are, the weight on the scale is going to go up. And if that's the only metric that you have, which is if you're looking at the scale only, it would be very easy for you to get freaked out, to drop, like to be like, okay, I, I've gained, you know, in the past, however many weeks, two weeks, I've gained a pound, two pounds, five pounds. I'm going to stop this and get back into my CR, into my cut so that I can get back to that weight that I was. So we don't actually give ourselves enough of the runway. You know, you were talking about a one or two year build phase, which I think, first of all, I think, I mean, just that number for most people is unheard of in terms of weight loss. It's like, I want it now. Yeah. I want it in seven days. I had three salads. Where's the body? So I think even just saying one to two years in a build, I think is so useful uh, for for my audience uh, to hear. But the other thing that I would love for you to, to maybe double click on and expand on is what happens during a build phase, because you are going to gain weight. And if you don't stick to the program and you're like, oh man, I'm just getting freaked out. And you sort of, you know, uh, you, you get a little frazzled, you can jump off and, and you're constantly going back to trying to maintain how you looked when, or, you know, your weight or your measurements or your photos or whatever, uh, when you were in that caloric restricted phase. 
Yeah. I feel like, you know, for me, I'm always been about 20, 25 pounds of competition weight. I don't feel like you have to have this crazy obscene amount of bulk in your building phase. Like the first time I, I you know, built and had building phase for a competition, I got to 230 pounds and I'm five, seven, five, eight. So that was an unnecessary book. It was not needed. And I had to lose 80 pounds in 12 weeks in order to be competitive on stage. I don't do that anymore. Now I stay within a much healthier range of 20 to 25 pounds. And I feel like my body fat now I'm about at a 15% body fat. So for me, with my amount of lean muscle tissue, I still feel good about how I look. I still feel confident about how I look at my own skin in that building phase. Now I prefer the way I look when I'm leaner. I prefer the way I look when I'm, you know, sub 10% body fat, but I also recognize that my ability to build as much lean muscle tissue in that you know, building phase is not going to be optimized if I'm constantly single digit body fat. And I feel like if you're only looking at the scale as a metric and a proxy for your progress, you're going to be disheartened. Whereas if you start to look at other measures, such as the amount of lean muscle tissue you build, and honestly, your strength markers, I feel like both males and females, if they start focusing more on their strength markers in their building phase, and they can get excited about seeing, you know, the amount of weight they're able to pull with a deadlift or the amount of weight they're able to squat. If they see that continually rise, they can feel confident that they're doing something you know, right. And things are moving in the right direction. And then when they do lean down at some point in the future, they're going to look better for it. Had they, because they did that building phase, that productive building phase, had they just, you know, stayed in that chronic deficit, they're not going to look much different. I think one of the main you know, issues I see is people spending so much time in a deficit and then transitioning back into a cut too quickly is that they wind up losing lean mass in that cutting phase. And then if they don't give themselves ample time back in the building phase, their metabolism never really upregulates, but then they also lose that lean muscle tissue and they wind up looking worse and worse and worse on stage. Uh, and that's the exact opposite of what you would want to do from a sustainable bodybuilding standpoint. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that when you, at least for me as well, because I have that sort of extremist, I'm like, I'm going to get up on a stage and let just judge me on in my bikini, like just tell me how I'm doing. So I tend to have that extremist type of personality as well. And I think that for me, what's been most helpful is when I shifted um, my focus to, so always, I'm always looking at the scale, always looking at measurements, let's say waist to hip ratio, for example, I'm always looking at blood markers. How's my thyroid doing? Where's my estrogen levels, all the things, liver markers, but we, in the gym, when I started focusing on performance, like, as you mentioned, how is my squat improving? Am I able to, you know, on a five rep, let's say how, how much, you know, week over week, month over month, is that weight going up? Now, of course I've been lifting for many years, so it's always like, it doesn't, I don't jump as fast as I used to, you know, like we all love those, those newbie gains, right? So when you first start training, you know, your body is remodeling at a very, very rapid rate. Once you have been training for a while, of course, your, uh, your gains are, we'll say slower. Um, but it is really, it's almost like a gamification. Like I almost have like this little competition with myself, you know? So it's like every month, have I improved my squat? Is my deadlift changing? Do I still feel like my form is on point when I add five or 10 or whatever it is pounds to the bar. And I think that that shift can also help to overcome in some ways that um, hypervigilant orthorexic type of behavior, right? Because if we're looking at these non-scale victories, like what are you doing in the gym? What's your bench press? What's your squat? Are you pull, are you doing pull-ups? Because every woman I think should be able to pull up their own weight. I think that those, those marker, and then other, other things like sleep and libido, like, do you have a sex drive? Uh, that's, I think that's really, really important uh, for us to be focusing on as well and not just the weight. 
hundred percent. I feel like if people don't focus on those other metrics, then it would be nearly impossible for them to be able to justify a building phase because what other metric do they have to look at and know that they're making progress? Whereas if you can see a tangible increase in lean muscle tissue via the weight that you're pushing in the gym, you can feel confident that things are trending in the right direction. I feel like that at the end of the day, people need to have some tangible, you know, feedback that they're doing something right. And if you're only looking at the scale, not even focusing on your body composition and what that scale weight is consisting of, then you're, you're never really going to spend any time in a surplus because it's always going to go up if you're in a surplus, uh, even if it's just water weights and, you know, food weight from eating more. But I think having that and being conscious of that, having those proxies for progress outside of just scale weight is paramount. And I feel like the more that conversation is had, the more people are focusing on those metrics, uh, the more sustainable people will find, you know, body recomposition as a whole. So once you, once you determine the proper, so you determine the heart rate that you should be training at in order to maximize fat burning capacity, how do you, so when you determine the intensity that's appropriate, how the, how do you uh, determine what volume of aerobic training is is appropriate. I'm always, I find I'm always dialing people back. So I'm always bringing people away, like step away from the bike, step away from the five times a week in the, you know, in terms of classes, what, how do you, how do you prescribe volume for someone? Yeah, it's hard. It depends on the person. It depends on, um, most importantly, it depends on their lifestyle. What, what do they have going on? Do they have um, a family, you know, with three kids and a lot of social responsibilities and um, and do they, do they work, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week? Um, and if they do, are they able to train 100 miles a week because they're running a marathon? Because that's what so-and-so said years ago and all the magazines say, well, you have to run 100 miles a week to run your, well, that's, you know. That's that's a, a disservice they're providing because that individual will burn out even at at aerobic training at the right level um, at 100 miles a week because um, that that can't be maintained. Um, and so you have to look at at that and put, you know, fit their training into their life their their lifestyle and that's not easy to do either because um the 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 idea is that we have we have our life here in our families and our work and and then we train this is we're trying to train over here and so you have people doing things like getting up at 4 a.m to get their workout in uh and and as a result lose an hour or two of sleep every night well that's ridiculous because they actually get stronger with the more sleep, the more rest they get. But you can't rationalize that. They want to, they, they have this hundred miles or whatever the, the number is for, for runners or for cyclists. Or, so I, 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 I take the, 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 the distance out of the, the picture for them. I say, look, I, I'd like you to train by time, not by miles. So with your schedule, it looks like you could do um, an hour of running five days a week and one day of a longer workout. And I don't care how many miles it is. If it's a runner, you know, there's no preconceived idea that you you have to do this or that. And so 
um, don't even think about how many miles you're going. You're, you're training for an hour. You're going to warm up slowly. You're going to maintain that. And then you're going to cool down. And after an hour, you're done. Simple. Um, uh, and, and, and that's a hard concept as well, but that's the, the training routine I had. And, um, I, I, I found the same thing you did is that most people want to do more. Uh, they, they're, they're training slower and they say, well, if I'm training slower, I, I need to add more training time. And of course, that's not true. So it's a it's a tough sell all around. And I had a hard time in the beginning. I think um, the other thing that I've uh, that I try to counsel people on, and I've noticed this in my own uh, observations around my heart rate, there comes a point. Let's say I'm back to my 136 example. I'm training at 136. My watts are 120 or, you know, you're running at a certain pace. And then there comes a point in that workout where my heart rate, I lose control of it. Like I just, it just starts to kind of get all over the place. Like it's going up to 144 and then it's coming back down to 132. And then that's the point where I, that's the point where I stop. So that for me, um, I try to look at heart rate, um, as a, I, I try to, I try to use heart rate as a predictor of time. Like once I start losing control of that 136, where it's like, it's going up to 144 or whatever it is. And I'm trying to, you know, use my, <laughs> my parasympathetic breathing to like kind of bring down my heart rate again. And I, I it keeps doing that. I'm sort of fighting with it. That's when I call it. Um, because then yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And that's, that's what's happening. You're, you're not, um, what technically what's happening is you're fatiguing. And, and uh, in fact, if you, if you just uh, work out um, for 30 minutes, you're fatigued and you'll notice that fatigue because you're going to have to slow down. After 45 minutes, you're going to have to slow down a little more. And after an hour, you're going to have to slow down even more. And so um, using the heart rate takes into account the fatigue mechanism and you have to adapt to that by slowing down. And as a result, you're going to get more out of your workout. But the, the, the big thing is that, you know, by, by strictly adhering to this, and this is what people do naturally, um, unless they're exposed to all the social um, uh, traditions of no pain, no gain, for example. Uh, when people are left on their own, and I've seen a few athletes uh, in my career who ha have sort of been, you know, not exposed to all this stuff. They were kind of novices maybe, or they were, they were in another sport and then they came into, into running or cycling and, um, they just did things naturally. And I was really pleasantly surprised to see that, but most people, um, have a hard time with it, but when they do it right, um, and they start getting better, they start getting faster, um, they, they suddenly realize that they're, <laughs> they're going much faster than they were before. Now, they're going faster than they used to train when their heart rate was 180, now it's 140. Um, and, and now, gee, all of a sudden, I'm having a hard time keeping up with my heart rate because it wants to slow down. 
And, and, and now they've gone from complaining they're training too slow to complaining they have to train too fast. And that could take a year or so or, or longer, depending on how disciplined they are. But that's always fun to see because it's, you know, it's an indication that they're succeeding. Um, it's an indication that the system is working and the human body is cooperating and so forth. And so do you ever, when you, when you have a situation like that, where someone, I, I mean, I might, maybe this is the incorrect terminology, but I would call that a plateau where someone is now, you know, they've been working at a certain heart rate, they're able to go faster and now they have to work. Um, is there, well, maybe I'll, is there ever a point where you would increase the heart rate as they sort of have reached their maximal speed or their, or, or is that, that never happens? I would increase the heart rate if we've reduced it because they were um, unhealthy. So if they're on medication, for example, we'd reduce that training heart rate by 10, which is a lot, I know, but that's the way it is. And, and so now if, if we, you know, we're going on six months and they've been able to, been able to um, eliminate um, their high blood pressure medication or whatever, um, we might um, move that heart rate up uh, or if they've had a lot of injuries uh, and now they're, they've been injury free for six months or whatever, uh, we, we might increase that. But I think mostly what you're referring to is the fact that the aerobic system makes a lot of progress over the months. And at some point it will hit a, a, a high peak of performance and that would be the place where we could add anaerobic training if that's what the the athlete wants to do oh there was a question about ketones like how should i take ketones i have a couple of i mean first of all i like my own body's ketones because it's free yes. so yes. <laughs> agreed being, so i like to make my own but if i'm so do you supplement with exogenous ketones um, I will do it in the fasting window. So here's what I think is that we can't, if you add in exogenous ketones, when blood sugar is high, you're going against your physiology. Your physiology is blood sugar goes down, you move into a fat burner energy system, and the byproduct of that is making ketones. So I would never eat a meal and take exogenous ketones. But now we use it a ton in our community where you're at hour 16 and you want to maybe go to a 24 hour fast. You're not feeling so good. Okay, let's throw some exogenous ketones in and see if that gives us a little bit of a burst to get through the rest of the day. I also don't feel like it should be a daily habit. I feel like it's a it's a as needed splash it in every once in a while, because uh, I to your point about. Uh, I would like my body's own ketones. I don't want my body to ever stop making ketones. So if you give it too much of an exogenous resource, it may slow down how well it can make those ketones. Hmm. And I, okay. So I love to, uh, so I'm very aligned with you there. I typically will, if I'm, if I'm in the mood for a new record in the gym, (laughs) Ah. <laughs> you know, cause I, I tend to work out fasted. So I will work out in the morning. That's usually the time that I have to work out. So I'll have some ketones with my water, let's say as I'm, you know, 10, 20 minutes before. And then I am like wonder woman in the gym, like captain Marvel, strongest, you know, hero. I'm like pushing, you know, pu- punching out like new PR. So I love it as an augment to my workout regimen. Mm. I also like it right before I record a podcast <laughs> because like- I, 
It's like I, plant medicine. It is. It's like <laughs> I have all of this access to words that I've forgotten yeah. and I'm so much more articulate. So I really love, and that's just my own little thing. Like I don't do it all the time, but you know, when there's like a really important podcast, there's a very technical podcast that I'm yeah. about to record or something. I I have a little bit of ketones uh, there as well. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm again, I think these are all great times. The absolute time I'm opposed to it is when blood sugar is super high. So in, because- in a fed state. Yeah. In a fed state, if I was to eat lunch and then, oh, I've got a podcast interview an hour from now, and then I take my ketones, you would want to make sure if you had a CGM on that your blood sugar was down to its pre-meal moment before you would take those ketones. Otherwise, you're going against your biology, and I'm not a fan. Um, you know what? You brought up one one thing that I really want to chat about, and I haven't talked to anybody about this, but there is a lot of mixed messaging on do women work out in a fasted state or mm-hmm. not? Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of hormone experts out there really feel that women should have protein before they go to the gym. I, for my body, I do really well in a fasted state at the gym, and then I come home and I power up on protein. So I'm curious what your thoughts on are on that. So there is a lot of discussion, we'll say, on yeah. uh, on how do you work out? And I think that the answer is it looks like it's easier or we'll say more optimal to work out with some protein and carbs in the body. So what does that look like? You have some proteins and carbs, maybe you have breakfast or something and your core body temperature rises, right? So that's also really good for your joints and your ligaments and your muscles, because if you work out in the, you know, in the morning, as I do, you have to be very careful not to injure yourself because you're stiff and you're not, your joints are not quite lubricated yet. Mm. So there does seem to be some evidence that suggests that in a fed state, your perf- at least your performance in the gym and your, you know, which will translate to, you know, hypertrophy and physique building, if that's the goal, seem to be better in a fed state. Mm-hmm. That being said, not all of us can do that. So like the ideal time to work out is about two o'clock in the afternoon. Not everybody can do that all the time. Some of us are at work. We have school pickup and all. And for me, the way that my life, you know, typically plays out is that if I don't get it done in the morning, there's a less and less likelihood, like the longer that the day goes on, that it's going to happen because other things come up. Like I got to, I'm going to go for a bike ride with my kid, or I'm going to take them to soccer practice, or I have a call or I have, you know, whatever. So for me, I get it done in the morning. It's not optimal. I don't think to be in a fasted state. That being said, I always make sure that I'm getting enough protein over a 24 hour period so that you know, the net net is, is, it's, it's, I think it's kind of a wash. So I always make sure after my workout, there's at least 35 to 40 grams of protein in a protein shake. I have some carbohydrates. I add creatine, uh, which was a big question that yeah, came up. So we'll I, yeah, talk about I, creatine. we got to go into that because a lot of people ask that question too. Let's put creatine in it. And then usually an hour to two hours later, I have breakfast and then I have lunch, let's say at two or one or whatever. And then I have dinner with the kids at, you know, whatever it is, five o'clock, six o'clock. So over the course of a 24 hour period, I'm getting, I'm making sure that I'm getting sufficient calories, which is important if you're, if you're trying to build muscle, you can't really build them in a deficit. It's harder to do Mm it. Um, and I'm also giving myself the enough sort of the minimum, I'm not just doing the minimum. I'm trying to do a surplus in protein in order to be able to maximize that muscle protein synthesis chemically from my diet, as well as the mechanical stimulus that I'm garnering from, um, uh, from the gym. So I think that there, you can still like, listen, I have 
trained, fasted for decades. Me too. I've, I've built muscle. So it's not yep. that you can't do it. Uh, it's just if you have the luxury to choose, it seems like the literature suggests that being in a fed state is going to be better for your performance, better for your joints, better for your recovery. But if you're not able to do that, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't work out because that is far worse than mm. working out in a fasted state. And yep. I'll say that my preference also has, you know, and maybe this might be my adaptation. I don't know, but I don't like typically working out fed because I feel, no. I just feel full. I feel heavy. Yep. Yep. So I, I prefer not worrying about my digestion while I'm lifting. Yep. So that's just my own kind of like two cents there. But if you yeah. like the, the whole thing is work out whenever it works for you. Yes. And if you have the option to, to choose, then I would choose uh, fed over fasted. So I agree with you on that. And a couple of principles that I've been playing with, with different patients of mine and played on myself is the idea that uh, when we're in a state of autophagy, we are in a state of repair and breakdown. The body's getting rid of the things that don't work for it. Um, we know sleep stimulates autophagy. We know HIIT training stimulates autophagy. We know that fasting stimulates autophagy. And when we've been in a state of autophagy and we're fasting, we also know that there's going to be higher requirements for exercise from glucose. You're, those muscles are going to have to dump glucose that might have been stored in there. And if you have a, carrying a lot of extra weight, it actually might burn more fat around those muscles in order to get access to stored glucose. So a trick that I have seen work over and over and over again is work out in a fasted state, whether it's cardio, whether it's, it's weightlifting, if you can even make sure you're in a state of autophagy and that works for you, that's a whole nother discussion and really empty out those muscles, break them down and then come home and power up on protein, get back into a state of mTOR. And now we're back into growth. What I am seeing in perimenopausal women is that is the key to muscle definition. So you're not only building muscle, but you've really broken down extra glucose that might be preventing and, and breaking down fat that might be preventing the muscle from revealing itself. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, but that is some a little hack that I have seen work really well for women that are like, why can't I get my muscles to show? I want more muscle definition. That's what I've seen. Let's do a let's do a slight left turn and let's talk a little bit about muscle building and how we build muscle on a ketogenic diet. Uh, I think that this has been, um, we'll say, argued. Uh, maybe ad nauseum uh, in the fitness space around what are the requirements for muscle protein synthesis? What are the requirements in terms of carbohydrate intake, in terms of preventing the catabolic or, you know, muscle protein breakdown, let's say, and the role of insulin uh, and, you know, to extension by extension, carbohydrates play in that. So what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously as a natural bodybuilder, you know, we've all, you know, we've seen pictures, I've seen pictures of you, you know, on, uh, on stage, very lean, you got a lot of muscle. Um, I think that there's been uh, people that have said or commented like, oh, you got all that muscle kind of before you went keto, you know? So what, what do you say around, uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the mechanics and the physiology around muscle building 
when we are on a ketogenic diet and maybe there is a modification of the ketogenic diet that you're that you're following where it's maybe not moderate to low protein it is a little bit higher like explain explain what's going on uh, in terms of the macronutrient breakdown of a ketogenic diet and the ability to put on lean muscle mass yeah so from a very very high level when it comes to building muscle on a ketogenic diet the main thing that i'm trying to accomplish is simply eating at a caloric surplus making sure i'm getting ample protein to rebuild uh, that tissue and ample dietary fat to fuel the workouts from an energy standpoint and then from a workout training standpoint just simply providing enough progressive overload to give my body reason to grow and add more muscle tissue so like that's it from a very high level view the the naysayers that you know comment on my post and say you built all your muscle with carbs they're not wrong, but that's simply because I did so much training before I ever even found the ketogenic diet. And then like you alluded to earlier in our conversation, once you've been training for quite some time and you have more muscle maturity, your ability to tap into those newbie gains is, is diminished. I mean, I put on 20 pounds largely, which was muscle my first year of training, but that's not going to happen after I've been training for five 10 plus years. Um, and this is definitely the case with natural bodybuilding. I mean, if you look at any of the elite level natural bodybuilders, they're ecstatic if they're able to see a one or two pound increase in their stage weight, you know, every time they step on stage like that, that's kind of more realistic expectation than assuming that you're going to put on, you know, 15, 20 pounds of solid muscle. Uh, that is also the case as you age. But when it comes to the ketogenic diet and, and optimizing for muscle growth in that context, simply eating enough calories, eating enough protein and training hard enough is the main levers that you want to pull. Um, there's a lot of studies that show there being an advantage to carbohydrates with regard to adding more lean mass. But so many of these studies are skewed because they're looking at uh, lean mass counting, you know, just everything that is not fat mass. So when you eat a carbohydrate heavy diet and you can have this, you know, super compensation of muscle glycogen, so to speak, which is going to measure an increase in lean mass, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have more skeletal muscle mass. So really kind of comparing apples to apples is super important when looking at different ways to build muscle and different diets to do so. And so how do you structure your training? So your, your primary, so what, and or actually before we even get there, when we're talking about the macro split that you're following, is it like a 70, 20, 10, like what is the, or is it more of like a quad, like it's 80, like what, what is the macronutrient breakdown typically for you? Yeah. So that changes quite a bit depending on what phase I'm in. When I'm in a building phase, it's pretty close to a one-to-one. -one. So one gram of protein per pound of, um, uh, per one gram of protein per gram of fat. So that winds up being about 69, 70% of my total calories coming from dietary fat. And that's a pretty sustainable intake for most it's easier to find foods that kind of fit that macronutrient uh, distribution. When I'm in a prep, I'll start at a really high fat ratio of about 80%. And then I'll taper that dietary fat while simultaneously increasing my protein. So I find my own unique protein threshold. And from there, I'll start dropping both fat and protein. So my macronutrient ratios are constantly in a state of flux while I'm cutting. Uh, but in the building phase, they're typically pretty close to that one-to-one. -one. Yeah. And you still, and when you're at that one-to-one, -one, you're still going to get that thermic effect of food and you're all, it's, you know, you're having enough protein. So it's satiating. So it's not that you're not getting enough protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which we know, you know, at the very minimum, you know, we're talking about uh, two to two and a half grams of, let's say leucine, which is an amino acid that's important in that MPS process. Um, but let's say equating to about 20 to 25 grams, let's say a protein per meal at a, at a base minimum, you're, you're easily getting that. 
Yeah, that's a really good point too, because I feel like so many people kind of what we're going, what we we're talking about earlier is they're they're not having enough caloric runway at the onset. So if you're only consuming a thousand calories per se, you're trying to maximize your performance with a ketogenic macro split, then you're not really getting ample protein in that context. Because if you've only got a thousand calories to work with, and seventy percent of those calories are coming from dietary fat, you're probably not getting ample. Uh, protein to, to, you know, make up for your lean mass. Whereas if you're taking in 3000 calories, 2,500 calories, uh, then you're able to maintain totally sufficient protein intake while still operating at a very high fat ratio. And so my question before that, I want to make sure that I don't forget to ask you is what does the training look like? We know that there's a, you know, a lot of ways to skin a cat, you know, we can have time under tension. There can be a metabolic stress to the muscle. What I like to call like finishers or dessert, right? You're just mm-hmm. doing like reps on reps on reps. Um, what are some of the ways that you like to, uh, you know, your in your build phase, obviously the, 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 I would assume that the goal is one hypertrophy and two is, is strength. So how do you structure the, weight training, what is your splits like? And what does the, in, what, what does the programming itself look like? Yeah. So one, I, I kind of built out a split for myself that is basically uh, it's an eight day heavy hypertrophy split. So for every eight day window, I have six training days and two recovery days uh, in those six training days. Each muscle group is basically getting targeted twice, one of which with a heavy focus and one of which with a hypertrophy focus. Uh, so kind of confusing, probably easier to, to draw that out uh, for a visual, but basically over the course of an eight day window, there's six training days, in which case every muscle group like legs, for instance, is getting targeted twice, one of which with, you know, a few repetitions, but heavier weights, the other, which being more of a slightly higher increase in you know total volume via, via more repetitions, but a slightly lighter weight. And honestly, I pretty much maintain that in the, both the building phase and the cutting phase, a lot of people make the mistake of they, they drastically change their training style when they transition into a caloric deficit because it's harder to train heavy and with more intensity. The problem is in the context of that caloric deficit, if you stop demanding that from your muscle tissue, like if you stop demanding that need to put in the work by training with less intensity, your body's going to become more catabolic catabolic and tap into that lean muscle tissue to make up the void of what you're missing with those calories. So continuing to demand that heavy workload from your muscles in the context of a deficit while harder is going to be one of the best things you can do to preserve the lean mass you've built throughout your building phase. And where do, if at all, exogenous ketones come into this? We know that ketones in general, uh, you know, there are many, but beta hydroxybutyrate is the one that we're all, you know, sort of more well-versed in more of an anti, more of a prevents, uh, you know, catabolic activity, let's say, do you supplement mm-hmm. with exogenous ketones? Are you relying with the own, your own, uh, endogenously, endogenously produced, uh, ketones in, uh, in prep and in, in your build phase and in the cut phase? I don't really use them so much in a cut phase simply because I, I want to lean more heavily on my endogenous production of them. And when I'm in a caloric deficit, my ketones are through the roof anyways. Like I have very high circulating ketones uh, in a caloric deficit. I've been playing around with exogenous ketones uh, in the building phase simply because I don't feel as mentally sharp when I'm at a pretty substantial uh, increase in calories. Um, and I like the way I feel with the exogenous ketones. So like, for instance, I've, I've got a whole bunch of those uh, ketone esters. So I've been supplementing with those prior to podcast recordings uh, and just think the things that require more mental bandwidth. And I feel like I've seen a benefit in that regard. Um, so I'll have exogenous ketones then, but I don't really use them so much from a performance standpoint. 
okay. with regard to my training. I feel like Wonder Woman when I take them. Like I'm always, if I do, I, I tend to work out fasted. It's just not for any, it's just when it fits into my schedule. Like the, when I train is in the morning. And if I mm-hmm. don't train in the morning before it's time to get the kitties, you know, off to camp or whatever it is, uh, or off to school, then, you know, it can happen in the afternoon, but it's, it's less likely because there's usually calls and things like that, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm pulled to. Um, so I find that when I supplement, and even if I'm, you know, if I'm just sort of checking in with myself, like what's my perceived, like, you know, rate of exertion, how tired am I? Did I sleep well? Whenever I take some exogenous ketones, I always hit PRs. Like I always feel like a monster. I can get into beast mode really easily. Um, and it's always like, I feel like, you know, there's that scene. I don't know if you're uh, a, a, a comics uh, nerd, but there's this scene in the first Wonder Woman movie where she basically like lifts a truck and she's about to throw mm-hmm. it at like the villain or whatever. Like I literally feel like that in that scene, but I, I have that kind of power with it, with ketones. Well, I'd say keep doing it then for sure. Are you doing like the esters or the salts? Uh, I'm doing the esters. Uh, so I have played with, I like salts. I like Dom's product, uh, the audacious, I think it's audacious nutrition. Um, mm. uh, his wife had sent me a bunch. I love them. And then I've been playing with the esters as well because I took, est- I used to take esters years ago and it felt like <laughs> I couldn't stomach them. Like it just tasted like battery acid. Like it just was awful. Um, but they've, um, there's a company called, um, HVMN or human, I guess. Um, and I really like their product. Like it just, it's, it's still got a little, it maybe feels like you're drinking a little bit of a mixer. Like it still has, you can sort of still taste that bit of alcoholic, uh, kind of, you know, it, it, tastes a little bit like you're, you're having a bit of a cocktail at seven in the yeah, morning. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's, it's not jet fuel. It doesn't feel like you're drinking, you know, battery acid or something. Yeah. They've done a pretty good job making it much more palatable. I mean, when they first sent me a sample, it was like, I, I, I would have to be paid to choke that down. Now <laughs> yes. I'll typically have like a serving of that prior to a podcast. And it's not, uh, I make a face when I drink it, but it's not, it's not intolerable. Yeah. It's not intolerable. I like that. That, I mean, and that's such an improvement to be able to say that it's not intolerable. It's such an improvement yeah. than before, you know, it was just awful before. I don't think anybody's claiming they taste good for right. sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, too many women in their 40s are like, I'm just going to do what I did when I was 25 yes. and it should work, right? Uh, so we do want to be thinking about, um, and, and I'll say this maybe in a slightly different way than you have, but I think we're saying the same thing, is there needs to be uh, build phases and cut phases. So mm. I think that there needs to be, you know, there's a question about, can I build muscle and lose fat? And it's like, yes. <laughs> you can, but maybe not as efficiently at the same time as, if, say, yeah. as if you were to do them kind of separate, you know, at different times. So yep. I feel like uh, for women, we've been, we've been scared and not just women. I think we've been like the, the conversation around mTOR the conversation around growth has been like that equals cancer. You know, it's like mm, you can never yeah. be in growth uh, because that, and, you know, we see like the, you know, maybe the, some of the blue zone research and some of these kind of longevity uh, researchers where they're always talking about this idea of like, how can we, how can we lengthen the life? How can we lengthen the life? Well, we're going to lengthen the life by suppressing mTOR. And the, the, the problem that I haven't, and I I've said this before, and I, I want someone to explain this to me because I can't seem to reconcile this is that as we age, our protein requirements go up. 
Yes. So it doesn't make sense to restrict protein as we age because we need to be able to overcome the natural insulin resistance that sets in, the natural anabolic resistance that sets in in the muscles. So you need to have a greater and greater bolus of or stimulus of protein, let's say, in the in the in the case of like stimulating muscular muscles um, to grow. And so I like um, I, I want people to not be scared of mTOR. It's it's yes. a it is a pathway for growth. But when you are doing the right things in your life, right? You are lifting weights and then you feed your body because you're trying to build your muscle. This is not a bad thing. No. Uh, yes. In the same way that I want women to kind of get over their fear of carbohydrates, you know, what, yes. did, what did you call yes. them? Nature's, what did you say? I call them like, nature's carbs. Nature's like, carbs. Yeah. Villani- villainize the processed carbs, but nature created some amazing carbs for, for all of us. Yes, they did. And I think that especially, and I'm guilty of this because when I was first in the keto world, I was like carbs of the devil. That that's yeah. why we have, but yeah. I've modified my position because especially as being a woman, you just can't always be, you can't always restrict carbs, you know, to no. our, we were talking about refeeds and why that's really important. And then these women that are like, my muscles are not, you know, full. I don't feel like I can see them. Well, part of the way that you're going to see them, you know, you you can work out and then you should feed them carbohydrates. Yes. You should feed them the nutrients that they have depleted during the workout, like protein, like creatine, like, like, like carbohydrates that are going to give you that, you know, what are the cool cats saying? Like that swole look, you know, like that, that the cool sort of, cats. you know, like, like I that. I don't know the cool cats and I definitely don't know that statement. I am definitely not a cool cat. I just observe them on Instagram. But, you know, like that kind of like, like filled out look, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see this right bef- a, lot, a lot of times before photo shoots, like, uh, you know, female fitness models, let's say they'll do push-ups or they'll do squats. So they'll do like lateral raises because they're trying to just bring mm. some flow, some blood flow in there. But you can do that nutritionally as well. Like you can give yourself the carbohydrates and the muscle, uh, pardon me, the protein to fill up, uh, let's say the muscle as well. Yeah. We really love absolutes is what I think. It's you know, like, humans do. They do. Yeah. We like absolutes. It's like, well, if I'm going to fast, then everything breaks the fast. You know, like and right. if I'm going to weight train, I'm going to turn into the Hulk. And, if, yes. you know, it's like that's not the the only two options are not the Hulk or a frail <laughs> sarcopenic, you know, <laughs> 90 year old, like there's, there's a happy (laughs) medium somewhere to be found in the middle, but you're so right. You're so right. It's such a good point. Women. I mean, I think humans, we love extremes, absolutes all the time. Yeah. So do you do anything post-workout? Uh, cause that was also a question was supplementation after a workout. Do you, yeah, it's a, cre- you the creatine question. Yeah, came the up creatine. A lot. Yeah. yeah. I love creatine. So I think that women, there's like a couple of foundational basics. All women should be on. We all should be on a magnesium. We all mm. should be taking, uh, an omega three. And if you don't have access to sunshine all the time, you should be taking some type of D three K two blend, especially like where I live. I live in a four season, you know, I live in Toronto, so we get lots of summer, we get lots of spring, lots of fall, but we also get a very cold and dark winter. So in those months, I'm making sure that there's, you know, because I don't have access to beautiful sunshine as you might, uh, you know, D3. I do have access to beautiful <laughs> yeah, sunshine. All the time. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, why do I live here? But anyway, D3 and K2 in the wintertime, uh, we do have excellent skiing. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, so for creatine, I think that this is 
So those are the three kind of like basics that for women. And then if you're a woman who also wants to build muscle, I think that creatine is a very, very exciting supplement. So not only uh, do we see this to be a potent mitochondria, like it will up the efficiency of the mitochondria, but it's going to replace, it's going to help you produce more ATP, which is like the energetic mm currency that we all kind of trade in to increase your workout intensity, which of course is going to have knock on effects to being able to build more muscle. So, you know, those short, fast, explosive movements, if you're like a runner or if you're a weightlifter, because a lot of weightlifting can be short, fast, uh, explosive movements. And then of course, creatine is also a fuel source, right? Mm. So it's your, it's actually your body's first choice of energy when you're doing anaerobic activity. So like the all out sprinting, like mm. when you see like the Usain Bolts at like the hundred meter, 200 meter sprints, the first 10 seconds or so is that phosphocreatine system. So mm-hmm. you want to replace the creatine that's, that's, that's been depleted, let's say in, in those, uh, in those activities. So people will talk about, um, saturating the muscle cell, uh, with creatine. And I think that that's a good idea. So the way that you'll do that is like, let's say five, uh, you know, like usually a scoop of creatine is about five grams. So you can do five grams in your protein shake over the course of like a month. And that should saturate the muscle cell. Um, and, uh, so I, and I typically take it after a workout. You can take it before. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. but I typically window, like you wouldn't do it in your fasting window. You could, I don't, I, you, you could, it's just, I don't remember to do it. I just yeah. remember that I'm about to eat. So I'm like, Oh, I'll just put some in my smoothie. Yeah. I'll just put some, it's right beside my protein powder. So it just, I put it in there. And I think that it's actually, you know, the muscles right after a workout are actually primed to take, the, you know, mm. to say, to take substrate up. So I like the idea of creatine post-workout, even though I know a lot of people talk about, um, you know, pre-workout creatine. And you can certainly do that as well. Um, Mm. I just find that the post-workout, it works for me in terms of remembering it, which is also when we're thinking about habits over the long term, it's like, what's the thing that you can remember to do the most consistently? Will I remember to do it before my workout? No. Will I remember because it's right beside my protein powder and that's exactly where I go to right after my workout? Yes. So- yeah. Love, I love that. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to have to add that in. I haven't been adding, I've been really obsessed on aminos right lately and adding in more aminos and looking at where that shows up for performance and moods for me. So have you noticed anything? Well, oh, I've noticed a lot. So here's what's really interesting about aminos. When you dive into understanding amino acids, you see that they are a precursor for two key neurochemicals in our body. They are a precursor for neurotransmitters and they're a precursor for hormones. And as women go through menopause, we're just getting more depleted on every front. So when we add these aminos back in, you start to see changes in mood, you start to see changes in energy, and I'm also seeing changes in muscle performance. Here's the trick. When you take an amino, you should feel like a a mood lift within 20 to 30 minutes of taking that amino acid. So for example, a great combo, my new favorite combo to tie in what you said about exogenous ketones is I'll do a scoop of exogenous ketones and a scoop of perfect aminos. And I am 
buzzing and happy. And that is a great pre-workout drink. Doesn't elevate my blood sugar. And then I can go in and rock a workout and then come out of that workout and lean into a higher protein. I do do animal protein. I I don't feel like you can get the complete amino acid profile with a vegetarian diet. So I'll do an animal protein at that point. Um, So now the second part about aminos that is really interesting is it takes about four to six months of continual amino acid uh, supplementation in order to build your reserves back up. So you, it's like you go in and you pulse it to help with the neurotransmitter and hormone production, but then you got to stay with it at, at some point throughout your day for four to six months so that you can bring it back up really depends on how depleted you are. It has been a game changer for mental health and, and for, for building muscle that I've seen in the menopausal women and perimenopausal women I've been working with. That's really with. interesting. I have never... Um... I have never used B, um, it's BCAAs you're talking about, branch chain amino yeah, acids. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. never used them in my training regimen. I don't know why. I have. I, I think I'll play with it and see. Yeah, see play if I'm, with it. Yeah. The, the trick is if you, and now we're going to get really geeky. The trick is if you think about what stimulates autophagy, it, autophagy is not just stimulated by a, a decrease in blood sugar. It's also stimulated by a decrease in nutrients. So one of the conversations I've been having with a lot of functional medicine doctors is, well, what if you come in with amino acids in your fasting window? Are you pulling yourself out of autophagy? And I think these are questions we just don't know. Um, and you just have to play with it and see how it works best for you. But but I do have that question in my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I, I we know that, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of things that stimulate autophagy, including training, right? You have this yeah. like cellular turnover of muscle cells as they're getting stronger. You kind of replace the old weak ones with the new strong ones. So it's in, it would be interesting... Yeah, I have to, I have to, I'm going to play with it. I've yeah, never even- play with it and see. Yeah, yeah. I feel, you know, do you know the cellular danger response where yep, the cells yep, yep. get so overloaded with physical, emotional, chemical stressors that they get stuck in this feedback loop that has the mitochondria not making ATP. It actually makes a signaling molecule that tells all the other cells, hey, shut down energy production, shut down hormone production because we're in a crisis. Yeah. Well, when you break that response down, what you see is, that what will happen is mineral and amino acid and some some overall vitamins will be depleted, but the biggie is amino acids. So we have so many people, but specifically women that are in the cellular danger response. So when I come in and I backfill in with amino acids, I'm watching them come out of the response. So now they're handling stress better. Their moods are better. They're having more energy because those mitochondria are not making the signaling molecule. They're actually making ATP for what, and that's what we need. Right. So it's my new game changer. I love aminas. And then you mentioned something that's very important that I, I talk about all the time on the show, which is why you're exercising in the first place or even why you're trying to eat right in the first place. If you enter into it, into that state or that, you know, those actions through a, uh, through self-hate, which everybody does, like, like almost nobody goes into a new exercise program from a place of self-love or self-care. And I, I don't, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. This is quite common. This is actually more common than not. We often, you know, like here's a scenario. You look in the mirror or somebody makes a comment or you see a picture of yourself and you go, oh, yeah, I'm fat or I don't look good. 
um, you know, that's 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 not attractive or ooh, I'm, I'm, I feel shame for that. I need to go to the gym to change that. Um, so you're going into it from a place of self-hate. Now, that's a very powerful short-term motivator. In a, very, in, a, in a short period of time, it'll get you to do a lot of things. Long-term, it'll never work because at some point, you, you, you stop hating. You can't hate yourself forever. You just can't. It's too self-destructive. And then you hear this. This is what you hear quite common, right? If you talk to a friend, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, maybe somebody who's watching or listening to this, you talk to a friend who was super consistent with their diet and their exercise, and you haven't seen them for a few months, and then you see them, and then you go, hey, how's that? How's your workouts going? How's your diet going? And say, oh, I, I stopped. You know, I just, you know, I just need to enjoy life. And, and that's a very, I remember the first time that really dawned on me as a trainer when I heard that, because I've heard that so many times, right? You kind of take it for granted. But I remember the first time it struck me, and I paused for a second, and I said, I want to enjoy my life, so I stopped exercising and I stopped eating right. Objectively, two things that uh, I, mean, I don't need to, I don't think I need to show studies to prove this, although there's millions of them, uh, you know, to exaggerate, there's thousands at least, to show that uh, exercising and eating right improves quality of life. All metrics, uh, psychological, mental, physical, like everything, right? And yet people say, quite often, I stopped because I wanted to enjoy my life. How is that possible? How can you, how can we, how can we make sense of that? Well, if exercise was a punishment for you feeling, you know, fat, disgusting, gross, whatever, if your diet was restrictive, punishing yourself because I don't know, I can't eat this way. I, 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 I don't look good or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, eventually you rebel against that. And, and I use the word rebel um, quite literally because when somebody goes off a diet, it's not like they go eat one cookie, right? They go and eat a whole box of cookies. It's, it's just like a kid that rebelled against their parents. Like they don't go and, you know, try one thing that they're not supposed to do. They go off and they go crazy with it. And, uh, and, and you wonder, why are we doing this up and down? We are going into it the wrong way. If you go to the gym and you think to yourself, I'm going to take care of me today. It's like, I need to take care of me. My body needs to be, does, I deserve to be taken care of. I deserve to have good mobility and to feel good through health, um, then not only are you going to want to, are you more likely to maintain that because you're taking care of yourself? Here's the best part. You're far more likely to exercise appropriately. You're far less likely to overtrain. You're far less likely to hurt yourself, right? Uh, if you go to the gym and you're tired, you're stressed out, how are you going to take care of yourself? I'm going to go easy. I'm going to walk. Maybe I'll use the sauna. Maybe I'll do some stretching, right? Now exercise becomes this incredible tool to improve your quality of life, regardless of the context of your life in the moment. So that means it could be stress relief. It means you could be exciting and you're, you're hitting new PRs and your lifts and you're running faster than you did before. It means you can go in there to make your joint feel, your joints feel better because they're stiff. Um, it can mean a lot of different things, but yeah, we enter into it the wrong way. The, the fitness media space doesn't help because we, again, we prey on the self-hate, right? You're not sexy enough. You don't look good enough. And um, when you go into it the wrong way, you're, you're bound to fail. And the statistics show this. 80% uh, of people will stop whatever routine they're doing or go off their diet within the first year. And I would venture to say within three or four years, it's probably closer to 90 something percent. I think the fail rate's almost 100%. <laughs> 
Holly had posted something, your wife had posted something. Um, I can't remember like a couple months ago and I wanted to make sure that we brought it up because sometimes, uh, and it, the post was about, uh, showing up even when you're tired. I can't remember exactly the context, but it, she was reviewing a study about, uh, I think it might've been uh, perceived rate of exertion uh, and training. And it was such a compelling study. And I remember, uh, and you you mentioned, you know, sometimes I go to the gym and I'm like, I don't want to be here. You know, how do you, what's the secret to staying motivated? I'm, I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, I, and I, I wanted to make sure that we bring this up because I think that there are many days that I don't want to, I'm tired, kids woke me up, whatever, I have a deadline, whatever it is. But I always feel better after I train. Maybe uh, I'm right, like right before my cycle begins, I'm like, okay, I don't have it in me. Like I'm I'm like a six out of 10, let's say today. Um, but I still go and do it. I always find that when I auto, when I, uh, when I think I'm tired and then I go down to the gym, it's often I'll have a, a new PR. I don't know why, but it's often where I have, and maybe that's a comment on my own perceived, my own auto-regulation. Maybe I'm not really uh, connected as, as well as I should, but I always find that whenever I think I'm tired and I'm like, you know, that little voice is like, I ah, maybe you should just skip today. Whenever I go, I always have, my mood is always better. I'm always better off. I'm never like, God, I should have never went. I think that's the point, right? Like very few people, when you do something that you know is good for you, even if you don't feel like doing it, it actually feels even better when you didn't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway. Like you, you get that, not only do you get the physiological benefit, but you also like, you find out something about yourself Yeah. Right? and you walk out feeling good about yourself. I didn't want to do this, but I did it. And I think that goes for, you know, several other things. Obviously you can go down the rabbit hole with this stuff, but you know, when they talk about like you get up in the morning and just, you know, start out and make your bed or, you know, do something that's a net positive, right? It just, you feel a little bit better about yourself. And I think the same thing for exercise. Now that's not saying you can never take a day off. Like I auto-regulate where, you know, for example, if, especially now that I'm, you know, 40 years old, I've dealt with several injuries in my powerlifting career. You know, if I just flew on a six hour flight and I got in at, you know, 8 PM and I didn't sleep much the night before, well, maybe now is not the time to go in and try to deadlift. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll move that to a different day, but I, I know I'm going to do it on a different day because I know I like, that's part of what I do. Um, but it's, especially when you're still establishing those habits, it is so important to show up even when you don't want to. Like now, if I miss a workout, I, I don't even worry about it because I know like it wasn't me. I'm going to do it. It just, you know, I'm just going to do it on a different day. But if you're just getting into establishing those habits, it can be so easy to say, well, I'm not feeling it today. I'll do it a different day. But then that starts to compound and then you start to feel worse about yourself. Now, I don't want to go in. So I think especially when you're in that first you know, few months of establishing those habits, you almost have to force yourself to do it, to just show yourself that you can get through it. And like you said, nobody walks out of the gym going, oh man, I really hate that I did that. I feel so much worse now. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.